Welcome, ladies, to the Real Estate Investor Show, providing inspiration, strategies, and insight to empower women investors to live balanced and financially free lives. Now, here are your co-hosts, Liz and Andressa. Investors, as we all know, financing deals can be very challenging. If you are looking for funding for your next real estate transaction, we want to introduce you to Fund That Flip. Fund That Flip is a lender that gets you fast, affordable capital on your one to four unit projects, including single family rental and new construction. Ladies, we have known the founder, Matt, and his company for many years, and they are the real deal. So Andressa, where can they learn more? Ladies, if you're looking for great terms and reliable service, check out fundaflip.com backslash investor. Invest now, thank yourself later. This is the advice that propelled Erin Sprodlin to quit her job and focus on real estate full-time back in 2015. Erin is the co-owner and broker of James Carlson Real Estate based in Denver, Colorado. When she's not helping homeowners or investors buy real estate or teach them the ins and outs about Airbnb, she's busy growing her own investment portfolio where she focuses on short-term rentals. On today's episode, we cover a lot with Erin from challenges and mistakes to avoid with Airbnb, how to be a rock star host, how to stay on top of the regulations, and how to know when it's time to quit your job. Welcome back, ladies. This is Liz. And this is Andressa. Welcome back to the Real Estate Investor Show. Super excited to be back here with you, all of you on this journey we're on where we're helping women uh, invest and learn and grow together. And we have Erin on our show here today. Welcome. Thanks. I'm super excited to be here today. Yeah. Jump into Erin's story here in a moment. She's really got a really cool story. Uh, but like we do, we like to kind of just connect with all of you, right, Andressa? And yeah, kind of hear what's with- hear what's up and going on. So I have gotten away from, you know, getting up and kind of doing my morning meditation, right? My morning kind of routine. And you talk to anybody and, and you say, what, you know, what works for you? And, and they often will say that they kind of get up and they get into the right mindset, right? Yeah. So I got away from that and I had an app called Calm, C-A-L-M. And I probably have talked about it even in the past, but I, I just recently we were moving and this, and then, and then you have all these things, all these reasons, right? You, you know, you're just too busy. <laughs> and it's just not good to be too busy because then that's the stuff that really matters. And uh, something recently happened where I had a very good friend give me some really tough news about um, her having cancer. And uh, I shouldn't have said that because I'm probably going to cry. But um, I really, really, really made me think about how important it is to get up and get into mindfulness and prayer, just that works for me. And, and I got back with this Calm app and it's just a wonderful app. I just wanted to recommend it. If anyone's looking for an app to help them kind of just kind of get into that kind of frame of mind, whether you're a prayerful or not prayerful person, whatever your beliefs are, whatever works for you. It's actually not religious at all or spiritual, yes. the actual app, but I just incorporate my own little things that work for me. But anyway, it's been so helpful getting back to that. And I, I got this news about a good friend of mine, one of my best friends, and I was just like, I got to get back into my getting up and getting into this really, you know, that mindset that, that okay, you know, I'm present in this world and what's going to work for me and, and just getting positive. So anyway, I just wanted to mention that, uh, you know, whatever's going on yeah. in your life, it really helps. And I actually put a reminder at noon every day, it pops up and says, are you being mindful at this moment? Wow. So, Usually I'm not, you know, but, but it comes up on my phone and I'm like, oh, come me up. Yeah. I got to like, just, okay, let me take a deep breath. 
you know, I might not have time for this long meditation, but let me take a deep breath. So you know, I just want to mention that. I'll put that in the show notes. It's, it's so good. Um, I'm reading a book right now that I'm going to talk more another time, but uh, it's about being mindful. And the guy was saying that uh, one of the most famous ladies out there that was very successful, Forbes magazine, you know, all that good, good stuff. And she said that majority of people give the excuse that they don't have time to meditate. But we should, what, she, what she have found is that if she meditates, she actually gains time during her day. She calms her mind down and she's extremely productive. Mm-hmm. So it's actually the opposite. I can meditate as of now, 2018, five minutes a day. That's what I got. And my goal is to get to that, you know, 20 sure. minutes, 30 minutes. But that's what I got right now. And that's what I'm mean working on. But, that's great. You know, yeah. but giving that time, even if it is five minutes, to calm your mind down, to be mindful, it does make a difference in your life, like 100%. And I think yes. just to take it seriously, you know, like I feel like I have these reminders to stop and do certain things, but that's an easy thing to ignore. And I think just across the board, it's really important to um, give those like breaks and stuff the same respect that you give to your proactive work because um, like I'll have it and then maybe you know one out of every five times I'm actually mm-hmm. doing it otherwise I just snooze it and forget it and so I think being like when I listen to a lot of podcasts or stuff about productivity it's just um, using technology or whatever to make yourself take a break um, and respect that time yeah I love that yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it's just to, you know, keep that in mind, ladies, you know, you, you, you gain more time by doing these kinds of things. So without further ado, Erin, uh, thanks again for being on our show. And we always like to start our, our episodes with these fantastic ladies we interview. I mean, everyone we interview is just so amazing. We're just so, you know, blessed to, to be able to interview all these great ladies doing this business in this business. But for you, what compelled you? What really moved you to get involved in, in investing and, you know, building a portfolio and all the good things you're up to? You know, um, it actually came from my husband. And I think that that's true for some of the women that I talked to and stuff. Um, I think I was pretty risk adverse and did not know a lot of investing, hadn't been to any investing groups. It seemed, I was still fairly young too. I mean, I was in my late 20s, so youngish. Um, but like, it just seemed kind of out of my element it always struck me as something that like white men in their 60s did and like bankers and stuff. <laughs> yeah um, in a suit in a suit you know in a suit yes uh, black like or, or blue dark blue yep <laughs> versus me um so i ended up uh my parents actually helped us get into our primary residence the first one and so we were in it and it was a pretty good deal. It seemed like Denver was going upwards and then uh, we had a lot of equity in it. So my husband and I, for our background, actually just going back a few steps, when we were dating, we weren't ready to live together yet. And so I was annoyed that we were spending all this money on rent. So I was like, let's just put my place up on Airbnb, see how it does. Um, and if I get 400 a month back, I'll be happy because that will cut down you know, the rent a little bit. So we put it up, it was gangbusters. I mean, within half an hour had $100 rental and then that basically didn't stop. And so then my husband and I at that time ended up renting out other apartments and doing stuff and we're making a lot of money off of that. And then my husband decided to get his real estate license because he was like, 
you know, I think we should try and acquire properties and see, but we hadn't done anything yet. We had just done the Airbnb side. So then we started running out other places and we were doing well off of that and we were renting and then doing Airbnb on top of those rentals. And so then we got married, we had a primary residence and my husband came to me with the idea of doing a HELOC and I was really uncomfortable with the idea of a HELOC because I thought I'm not going to leverage my personal property for you to have this project, like you're nuts, we're not gonna do it. But he started to send me um, a bunch of articles on HELOCs and stuff and then the more I started to learn about investing, it's like this is actually how a lot of investors get into yes. it not that crazy and then I was kind of like annoyed like why don't they teach you about this in high school <laughs> why I don't know about this yeah so um we did a HELOC we got our first investment he got his real estate license and then probably quit his job six months after that to try and really make a go for it and then I my background was I was a marketing director and I had worked for a lot of companies that were small businesses and then those companies also did marketing for small businesses and because I had that background I was like it's not as scary like I'm like a lot of people can do small businesses it is feasible so he had quit his job and then I quit my job a month later and it was a little nuts it wasn't like the best planned out, but I'm so happy we did it. And then we basically set up a real estate shop. We're under the umbrella of a company called Brokers Guild, but we kind of have our own our own division within that. And so we did that and we got into it. And then after that, we bought a duplex with, we partnered with some other people to do that and then um, acquired, we had our initial acquired investment, bought a primary and then that duplex with someone else. So. Um, that's a long answer, but that's how we got into it. Nice. And, and we're going to, we're going to talk about short-term rentals. A lot of people talk about like Airbnb, which is one of the most famous, famous portals out there. And it's one of my favorite subjects. So I'm very excited to talk to you about your experience. Where do you think this industry is going? Because it's still Airbnb started in 2008. It's still like a baby and everything else. You know, VRBO is a little bit older, but it's still, there's so many transitions and, and changes in the law going on right now in different states. So short-term rentals. A lot of the ladies that ask me the question, can I convert my property to a short-term rental where this rental that I have here long-term, is he a good fit for Airbnb or not. So what exactly do you look into a property in order to determine if that is a good fit for Airbnb or not? Yeah, I look at like obviously the proximity to industry and downtown. So a lot of the things that I'll coach my clients on are, you know, is it close to a hospital? Is it close to a college? Is it close to bars and restaurants? And usually you want to be within, you know, half a mile to a mile of that. But it, it honestly doesn't need to just be that. Like my brother, has some properties that are on the western side of Colorado Springs and they're literally tucked into a neighborhood with that is not an exciting neighborhood. There's not much going on and he is killing it. He's having no problem keeping those rented. So I think there's all sorts of different models. I think for us, one thing that I tell people to think about is that if you have a long-term rental, usually the revenue on a short-term rental is two times what you're going to get on a long-term re rental. That's what we've seen as far as our clients and then kind of the industry. But you have an initial investment of eight to $10,000 for about a three bedroom if mm -hmm. you furnish it. So it's like, you are going to recoup that money pretty quickly if it seems like a good place to do it, but you just need to think about that investment. And actually more broadly beyond um, just looking at 
uh, colleges and hospitals, you can also just search Airbnb and see, are your neighbors doing it? Are they staying rented? Are, you know, what are they charging per night? And then there's also tools like AirDNA that also will give you an idea. You could call property managers, local property managers that do it as well. Those are some of the ways that we run it. But I think for our clients, at least too, we have very specific pockets that we say, do it here. Um, so we feel pretty comfortable with those areas. Great. Yeah, I mean, Aaron, it's it's interesting, right? Because you just said you can make two times what you can make with your long-term rentals. Like that's really that's significant, right? It's not like ten percent. I mean, it's that's you know that's really significant. So, what do you find to be the hurdles or the challenges that like if you have long-term rentals to and you haven't and then say like let's make believe the area is is prime for short-term rentals right let's make believe that that's a prerequisite right that that you know that you have long-term rentals in areas that you know you really could convert what do you find to be like the challenges or the the hurdles that investors have to kind of work through um because it can kind of seem overwhelming especially i mean andressa has a lot more experience with this she's got airbnb uh excuse me short-term rental kind of properties and I think about it, I'm like, sounds like a lot of work, you know, the two times, is it two times the effort, two times the, the work, right? So, I mean, again, that could just be my own, my own um, lack of knowledge, right? Because I don't know the area as well as you and probably Andressa do, do. But I guess the question would be, what do investors need to think through to really evaluate, like, the, 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 just the process of, of converting and doing that, that, making that effort to, you know, to convert? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things. I think uh, initially investors sometimes have a hard time with the numbers, like actually believing that they are going to get two times the revenue. And I would say two times is conservative. I usually see two to three times, but it's always better to be conservative in your numbers. So I just say two times, even if I think it's going to be a little bit higher. Um, so I think they have issues with getting over that number and actually believing it. Uh, the other thing I would say is that the setup, that's usually, you know, the first month is where there's just a lot of fighting with your spouse or your business partner because it's very stressful. You have to furnish this place and you may not agree on how much you should spend on the furniture or mm -hmm. what the theme should be and stuff. And so I think that's where you see a lot of stress. At least we did personally. And I, I, I think that's true for our clients as well. And then, um, I think a property manager, but this is true for long term as well, but a property manager is so important, um, especially if you're an out-of-state investor. There's no way that you can do short-term rentals as an out-of-state investor without having a property manager on the ground. And so with a long-term rental, the property manager is usually 8 to 12%. And I would say for Airbnb, it's 20 to 30%. But yeah. they are doing a lot more work. It is definitely more than two times the work because now you are doing a lot of communication and letting people in. Obviously there's systems that can help with that, but you know, you're looking at linens and cleaning and, and I've just found too, from my experience, like the Airbnb guests really want to have that authentic feel for the neighborhood. So they want to know, you know, there's a lot of questions about what bars do you like? What restaurants, you know, my mom is into this, where would you recommend, you know? So, um, I think it's, it's a lot less hands off. Yeah, I think you, you touch base and very important topic. If you are running your Airbnb as a hobby, you're going to get paid as a hobby. Forget the two times the three times, because if you're just like, yeah, it's, it's there, it's available. If you're not putting effort into it, that's what you're going to get. If it is run properly with you know the systems that you got in place and the quality that your gas required 
that's the potential for it. What would you say make your properties different from others? What do you offer to your guests that will give them the experience that they want? Um, I would say, you know, people have different philosophies on this. I think our property manager, because we use a property manager that um, we love in Colorado Springs, and I think he puts a heavy emphasis on having local coffee and making it this experience and stuff. But I, to me, I think that is an add-on, and it's something James and I used to always joke about. I'd say, you would write these people love letters if you could. You're, like, always getting somebody a bottle of champagne. <laughs> and I'm like, it's a business, and we need to, like, kind of cut to. So to me, I guess the really important things are strong communication and cleanliness. I think I totally agree with you. If you run it like a hobby, you are not going to make the money. You need to very much consider it a business. And with that, also think about the business partners that you're taking on with it because it's great money but it's not free money um so it's like you need to take that very seriously and i guess i i really value the communication and cleanliness piece of it going back to the uh, circling back to the property management side of it so i am i'm not familiar with this to be honest with you but are there property management companies that actually specialize in short-term rentals yes Okay, so across the country, just like, because I'm very familiar, obviously, with more of like a long-term um, property management setup, because we've, we've managed properties long-term, and then we've, we've hired third-party companies. So I, I, have a, I have a good understanding of that, but I'm curious, and obviously how to evaluate them and the questions to ask. I'm curious, if, if you're evaluating a property management company for short-term rentals, how different is that kind of vetting process, different questions, different things you want to listen for? I mean, I know for long-term rentals, you know, you know, what tends to be your vacancy rate, right? What, what is your response level to increase from, from tenants? Uh, you know, you have certain things I want to hear from vetting a third-party company. What are those questions or what are those like top three questions that, you know, ladies listening that they're vetting a property management company to do short-term rentals? Uh, what do they want to ask? Yeah, I think the questions that you just talked about are relevant, but also, um, I want to know like with our property manager because you hear people run them differently. So for me, it's more important to have bought heads and beds. So sometimes you'll have a property manager that charges more but has less heads and beds. Um, so you have a lower vacancy rate, but you charge a higher amount. For me, I would rather have the price dropped and have more people in. I've just found that you make more money that way. So that's one thing I want to know. I want to know as far as like the cleaning and linen fees, is that something they're breaking down by each property or are they doing like a monthly fee that everyone that they do property management for is buying into? Um, I also just for a property manager across the board, I'm very interested in the transparency of the reporting. So how often am I going to get a report? Is it always going to be consistent? Do I have transparency into the VRBO background and the Airbnb background? And, and you don't always have that. Like I don't have maybe as much transparency as I would like with my property manager. Um, and I think some of that is related to the fact that he runs a lot of properties and he would have to pull from booking.com and VRBO and Airbnb. So I think he is not unfair or unrealistic, but I just, I want to know, like if I want to do a full audit on you, what does that look like and what is the process for that? So those are the three biggies that I would ask before you hired an STR and the way that I think of it as being different than a long-term rental. And do you find that the like companies specialize in that? Or are they doing both now, right? They have like a long-term portfolio and they're managing short-term or 
is that like a red flag, right? If I called a property management company and they said, yeah, we got, we got short-term rentals, we got long-term rentals, we, we manage over a thousand units, which, what do you have? You know, is that a red flag? Is it something that's like, wow, it's a specialization and you want those people who are really good at that or, or does it not matter? I'm curious. Yeah, mm-hmm. I only work with ones that um, do short-term and only short-term. So I can't speak to the hybrid piece. One thing that I do think that you see with short-term rental companies sometimes is what is their plan for scaling and what does their staff look like? Because I think that is a very difficult piece for the ones that I've worked with. Some of the national ones and even the local ones, they do a really good job and people want to work with them because it is a critical piece of that investment, but it is so labor intensive and time intensive. So it's like, how many properties are you going to take on and what is your plan and what is, what is your employee staff look like? And um, how long have you worked with them? And you know, what is, is your plan if someone quits and stuff because I, that's what I'm seeing is those companies are having difficulty scaling yes. and keeping the quality. I, I completely agree. Um, I've been managing my own properties because I, I have a specific way to doing things and I was approached by other investors to do that. And my goal was like, I don't want to just become a property management company for short-term rentals for other people. However, the systems that I already have in place, I can implement for them. So it's just organic. And I completely agree with you. I'm not, I, I love your question, Liz, because it requ- I also think that it requires different skills, completely different skill set. And you've got to be informed about short-term rental. It's a, it's a, it's a special guest. Every guest is a special guest. And you can't be upset if they make a request or, or you know, it is just a special guest. I treat all of them as a special guest. So the hospitality, the hospitality requirement, the customer service, I believe that's my only, you know, my own opinion on it. It requires a higher customer service than just a property management company that is going to say, oh, your toilet's clogged. Okay, I'm going to send somebody there. Yeah. There's much more into it. (coughs) I totally agree. And I think, well, that's interesting. I say I totally agree. James totally agrees. James, that's his philosophy and that's our property manager's philosophy. Whereas I, and I think actually I've scaled back a little bit on it because I don't want to be involved in that all the time. And I think from the real estate side, it's interesting too, because you'll have agents that are like, yeah, I, I can do STRs because I can identify um, that it has a carriage house or something, mm-hmm. right? But yeah. there's all these other things like, what is the law? What are the setbacks? Yes. What's zoning? Um, you know, have what is, what is the sense of the neighbors? Has anyone done this before? Can we pull the numbers on it and stuff? So I see that sometimes when people are like, you know, I want to go in and I want to do this. And it's like, I would say, you know, the laws and the zoning are really, really important. And it's where you can get in a yes. lot of trouble. Yeah. And, and piggybacking on that, you know, each, each state, sometimes the counties, they have different, you know, opinions towards it. Sometimes people are against it without even knowing whether they're against it, but they're against it or whatever that situation might be. The hotels, there's a lot of like, you know, um, challenges that short-term rentals are facing right now. And I feel that we are in a transition. So for the markets that you are looking to invest, what would you say to the ladies that are listening to us? Is it better to go to a market where there's already a legislation in place or, or, or not? I would say 100% better to go somewhere where there's legislation. And just to give you background on that, so in Colorado, we have called probably 
over 40 different cities to find out what their positioning is on it because Boulder, Denver, and Aurora have pretty strict laws and it has to be your primary residence. So there's a component of that which obviously changed things for James and I and a lot of people in Denver that were doing it. Um, but Colorado Springs has no primary residence component. Anyone can buy in, anyone can do it. And it's, that was very interesting to us because Denver, Boulder are much more liberal. And so the idea was that they would be much more tech friendly, mm-hmm. but they also were very concerned about housing affordability and what that looks yes. like. Whereas Colorado Springs is kind of, it has some old school thought, but it's much more conservative. And it's like, hands off my property, I'm gonna do what I wanna do. And so I think from our side, we think Colorado Springs is a much better buy, in part because it's cheaper and you're seeing a lot of flood from Denver. So it, it seems like it could be a good long-term investment. But then also the law now, they so basically what they did, they just had a meeting on it and they said, it's free for all. Anyone can do it and we'll revisit it in six months. Okay. And it looks like in six months, what they're going to do is they will grandfather everyone in that already has a license hundred percent, or they will do it 125% of what the existing licenses are if they decide to change anything. So I, I, I feel like the reason why we, it, we advise people to do that is because we feel that you don't make an investment, not knowing what the regulator, what the regulation right. In that community it's just it's too risky or you make that but you you know you bake that in and you have a long-term plan or you're just comfortable with like I'll make really good money for two to three years and then if the law changes I'll take my money and go or sell my place or whatever but you need to have a plan and so for at least our clients we tend to say go somewhere where the law is established yeah I totally agree with that and and I just want to follow up so for the ladies that are listening to us, if they are looking to invest in real estate, and as you were saying, the laws can change in six months, in one year, who knows when, you know, new elections come up, what, what's going to happen. So my philosophy on the properties that I have is that if I were to convert back to long-term rental, it will still work. Or if I have to sell it, it will still work. What are your thoughts on, on that? I, I'm kind of a mixed bag on that because we always have told people, and I think it's the right thing to tell them, is that, you know, look and make sure that the long-term rental play works. But I think one thing that I've been thinking about lately that I'm getting a little bit hung up on is that if I told an investor, you're going to cash flow every year or every month $250 for four years, then they would be happy with that and they would take it. And then I would say, and I don't know what's going to happen at that fourth year, but you'll know that you're going to cash flow for 250 but if I say you're going to cash flow for 500 a month, but only <laughs> years, because that's what the Airbnb, yeah, does, right? Because it takes communities a long time to pass those laws, like a year or two. So, you know, if you would be happy with that four-year stretch, then maybe you should be happy with the two-year stretch. But that's for you to decide, not for me. But it's yeah. just I think we've had a very hard line of like, make sure it works long term, make sure that this still works for you. And now I'm like. I don't know. I mean, if you'd be happy with 250 for four years, are you happy with 500 for two years? Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think it's just, it comes down to what are your personal goals, your risk tolerance and different, different things. Sometimes people want to, I, I know investors that they want to tap into this new, it's exciting for them to tap into this new industry, quote unquote, new industry. Mm-hmm. And for others, it doesn't excite them. So it comes down to your decision, the investor decision, yeah. it's your property, your vision. So that's, that what's needs to take in consideration. Yeah. 
That's really fascinating. There's probably so much to learn about this whole topic, right? And I know, Aaron, you blog for Bigger Pockets and you're a you know, thought leader in this space. So, you know, those are great, great suggestions and appreciate you sharing those. So, just to shift gears a little bit, I'm, I want to come back to before we, we forget to even talk about this is you mentioned about quitting your job with your husband. And then you, you guys, you know, he quit and then a month later you quit. Um, you know, I can very much relate because, you know, we, we, my husband and I kind of not a month probably wasn't the, the time frame, but we've done that. We did that too. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to just get some, you know, words of wisdom from you. I mean, those are two really big things. One, working with your spouse and two, quitting your job within a month of each other. So people want to do that. Some people want to do this passively. Some people want to do it actively like you and your husband. So I'm curious, like now that you can look back, right? Because it's always, you know, hindsight's always 2020, right? We always learn a lot more like, oh, as I look back on this, some of the things I did, I'm like, oh, why the hell did I do that? But (laughs) what for you would you say are like the biggest lessons that you learned going through that with your husband? You know, both of you quitting within a month, um, working together, um, getting, you know, both leaving what you knew to do this kind of full time. So, you know, what would be the biggest things that you would recommend ladies listening to this that are on the fence that want to quit, you know? Yeah, I think two things uh, motivated me. One is a Woody Allen quote, but um, it is 80% is showing up. And I fully believe that, right? Like, I don't know that you need to be that experienced or what, you know, there's risk. So I don't want to say just be totally irresponsible about it. But like, there are a lot of people that showed up in the space before you that weren't particularly good at it or smarter than you or anything else. They just took the risk. So I highly encourage that like showing up is 80% of the battle. And then the other thought that I always had was that a nine to five job is always waiting for me. If we fail after a year or whatever, there is, I can always get a nine to five job that I'm not happy with, that I don't want to work for someone else, that whatever. And so it's like, really, what is the risk? And this has always been a dream of mine. So I wanted to do it. And I think, yeah, it was scary. But people have said to me too, like, do you lose sleep at night because of the roller coaster of like making your own money and not having a solid paycheck? And actually, I don't, I I lost a lot more sleep when I worked for someone else. And I felt like so many things were out of my control. And I would be thrown in a bus or, you know, like, whatever things that were negative experiences I would lose sleep and be like pissed about that and I haven't had anything like that since I've worked for myself because I I get to choose my clients I get to choose what I you know what I'm comfortable with the things that I want to pursue that are interesting to me and so um I think my advice to people is like just do it it's going to be okay and then also like what I guess logistically think about what happens if you ultimately fail. What's the worst thing? Mm. What's the end point? And then what's the solution to that end point? And then I think it makes it easier to, to make that leap. Yeah. It's funny you say that because I, I, when we, when, when I quit my job, um, you know, the first time my husband had done it and I did it a few years later and I said, you know, what's really the worst that can happen? Same thing with you. And I said, well, we have savings for a year, you know, I, I'd saved up enough to say, okay, if we literally like bomb at this and, and you know, then, then we have enough money to cover us. We ended up, I ended up going back to my consulting work for another, for other reasons and things like that. And then I left again and that, that, you know, but you have to really play, like play that out. Like what is literally the worst thing that can happen? And, um, it's a great way to think of it because you're like, okay, can I deal with that? Can I, can I, can I swallow that? And right. if you can, then there's no reason not to go for it. Kind of, I mean, if you really think of it that way. So 
I try to be realistic though, also about other people's limitations. Like my husband and I don't have kids. So I think for us, and it's something we've decided not to do, but it's like that, it makes it a much easier decision. I think, you know, sometimes when I'm telling people, it's like, that was an easier decision for me than if you have three little kids at home and like, they sure. Parents and you know it's going to affect all these things so I, I don't ever want to discourage people but I also want to be realistic and not like overly uh, bashful about or not bashful but like overly confident about what we did I think our circumstances were a certain way I also think like we were never going to start like my parents always have a basement we could live in you know so like there there were safety nets for us but I think that's true for a lot of people but I just also I, I don't want to just say like just do it it's totally easy when I do take into account like we don't have kids and I think that's a different situation I I don't know do you have kids and did you find that that factored in what that yeah looks? well it's funny because when we did it when we started our business it was right when we got married as well and we actually waited eight years I have two little ones now I have a five-year-old and a almost two-year-old but we didn't have kids at the time when we quit our jobs and I you know I think about those things I think about a lot of things when you don't have children and then what you do when you do have children yeah um, I mean you cannot deny your mind and your risk tolerance shifts. I mean, I, I am much more conservative even now than I was when we started. I mean, the things that we did when we started our business. Now, I'm so grateful that we did it because now where we are, you know, you kind of like, you're appreciative about it, but I'm like, what the hell was I thinking? Because I, I wouldn't do that now. I wouldn't take that risk now with two little ones. Um, I take, we take risks, but it, they're different, you know, right? They're different um, thresholds, I guess. So yeah, your risk tolerance shifts. I think that's a really good point of you know, knowing where you are in your life, knowing what you're willing to, I've heard people that have little ones who do quit their job though. I mean, so it's not unheard of, but you're right. It's, it's, how do I manage that? And how do I, um, you know, what are my safety nets and, and what am I willing to do? And, and it, it does get a little harder though. I can say that, especially as you grow a family. Yeah. <laughs> more at stake. I, I also quit when I did not have kids. And I think that comes down to like, what's the support system, right? That you have around you to make sure that things are taken care of, your family is taken care of, and at the same time, your business is growing. And I think that the biggest lesson that I've learned throughout is that um, there's no such thing as uh, centralizing or, or not delegating. The more that I delegate, the more that I make you know, partnerships with other people, easier it got to mm -hmm. me. And, and less perfectionist I got and more systematic that I got. So it's just like a mindset shift that had to happen. Sometimes it did hurt. Sometimes I couldn't understand, but I trusted the process and I surrounded myself with people that were doing what I was looking to do and look at what, what changes they had to do. And sometimes it's just ask for help. Hey, can you support me here? Can you, can you, how can we, you know, we have crazy schedule. How can we all work out a, right. a schedule yeah. that works for everybody? I think too that um, if you think about it, like any kind of big life decision you make, whether it's starting your own business or going to grad school or having kids, there is never a convenient time for it, right? Like yeah. your entire life is going to be interrupted. You're going to have to like change all these things. And so I know I went to grad school and I was really hesitant to do it like, 
you know, I'm working full time and I'm going to pay this and I don't know if it's going to pay off and whatever. And then I was so happy. It's like one of the best things I've ever done, but it was really frightening to me. And then I just think having that mentality of like, nothing is ever convenient. It never makes sense. My friends that have kids, it's like, it's always a bad time or a good time, right? It's always the bad time, the bad time to do it. It's never. So I think the same, same thing applies for going into business. Yeah. Yeah. If you're waiting for this, like I I was even just talking to my sister about moving and I'm like, you know, we're moving around the holidays and Thanksgiving. And she's like, what would you rather be moving in like the spring when the weather is beautiful and you'd rather be outside with your kid? Like there's, there's never a good time. There's never a good time to do any of these really big kind of transitions in your life. So, um, and I also just follow up with the thought of, you know, quitting your job is not for everyone. And I think, I think there's a lot out there that's like, quit your nine to five, quit your nine to five. Like not everyone wants to quit their nine to five. And I don't think people should feel like they, um, it's almost like they should want to quit their job. Do you know what I mean? And I, I, I think there's a lot out there and I think people, especially in real estate investing, there are some very successful investors who are part-time. Yeah. We have a full-time job. So the biggest question is where do you want to be in your life in a few years? And like, what's going to get you there? And if you don't enjoy what you're doing, then by all means, like think about that path of, of quitting your job. But some people really enjoy it. And I, I think that, I don't know, I think there's like this pressure that I, I read a lot of articles and see a lot on like, like that everyone should want to. And I'm like, not everyone probably wants to. And I think it, we have to be mindful of where people are and what they want out of life. And um, you can do this business in a lot of different shades and a lot of different ways. So I, I just um, want to mention that because I just see a lot of a lot of, you know, articles and things about, you know, almost like everyone should want to do that. And well, I, I think so. that's great advice on your part. Like it, it is not a one size fits all. And if that is not your thing, like you said, if you're happy at your job and you're happy with what you do day to day, and I agree. I feel like there's this pressure of like right. ultimate financial independence, yeah. ultimate, like go out on your own. And it's like, like for me, I, the financial independence piece is interesting. I want to like, be independent, but I wouldn't say like, we are not cutting out Netflix and never going out to drink and only reading (laughs) five hours a day. Like we definitely have made, like my, my goal personally is like to be able to pay my bills and do one international vacation a year. If I can do those things, I'm set. Don't care beyond that, you know, like and to have a little bit of retirement, right? But like, I, I don't care about all, you know, some of the stuff that people are talking about, I'm like, no way. What's the point? I, you know, I, yeah. I think it comes down to knowing what you want and what yeah. makes you happy yeah. at that moment and what your vision is. It's, it's all about, and that's all individual. There's no such thing as, you know, a one-time recipe. For yeah. Just, and to full circle it, you cannot know what you want if you don't actually quiet your mind. And yeah. I feel like whenever I quiet my mind, a great idea comes to my head or something I want to do or a business idea or just something personally, something. But if I don't quiet my mind, you know, you just keep going and going and in life just keeps spinning and you, you lose those opportunities. So, so that's, that's a, uh, you know, great, great advice, Aaron, though. Your, your path is really fascinating. So what's next for you? Where do you, where do you, where are you guys going next? Yeah, that's a great question. So I was at I was at my investment meeting and we had a woman in there named Linda Stowell who's on Bigger Pockets a lot. Um, and she also her company is called Arch Realty. But we had her come in and speak to doing long distance investments. And so she mm. looked 
December, but she doesn't mention Tulsa. And one thing that she talked about right off the top was maybe you want to look at somewhere where your family is based or where you're going to spend a lot of time or where you can get cheap airplane access. And that was really interesting to me because I, I didn't feel like it was something that I had heard talked about a lot. And um, my husband's family lives in Kansas City. Kansas City is a great city. Um, and also we run a second business. So it's a tour business. And I feel like I'm like, Kansas City is really lining up. I'm like, 2019, we are going to purchase property in Kansas and cool. we are open a second shop in Kansas City. So we'll see if that happens. But this week I'm like, I think that's because I think again, like I'm not comfortable. I've never invested out of state. I've never run a business around a state. And I'm like, if you're telling everybody just show up, just do it, then like, just do it. But again, follow the logic. Like what's the worst thing that could happen? Yeah. And we're, that's awesome. And we're, it's funny you say Kansas City because we're, we're actually expanding our investor meetups around the country. And we asked for women to kind of volunteer just to start meetings and get other women together to kind of support each other. And one of our volunteers is from Kansas City. So I will, uh, after our, our, our interview here, I will, I will connect the two of you. Um, but Erin, too, where can the ladies listening uh, learn more about what you're up to and just kind of keep up to, up to date with, with all the great things you're, uh, you're doing? Sure, thank you. Um, so if you go into Bigger Pockets, I obviously blog for them and you can just look up my name, which is Erin Spradlin. Um, and then also our real estate website is jamescarlsonrealestate.com. Or if you Google anything like Airbnb Denver, or Airbnb Colors. Mm-hmm we will come up that way too. Um, so those are kind of the easiest ways to find us. We're also on Facebook and Instagram, but probably the website or bigger pockets is an easier way to go about getting in touch with us. That's great. And all this information is going to be on our show notes. Now we're going to transition to our fabulous three questions. Are you ready, Erin? I hope so. All right. <laughs> the first one is what's the most transformational book you have ever read? You know, um, I was listening to your podcast the other day and I heard someone answer this. I think um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People was pretty transformational for me, um, only because I liked the idea. There's a concept in there that you write a constitution and it's kind of how your year or your month looks and then you go after that. I really liked that. Um, Another book that I'm actually listening to on tape right now that I think is very interesting is all about um, meeting planning and how to think about planning any kind of event or any kind of marketing piece that you do differently and being very clear on who your audience is. And I think that's a very interesting one as well. Which book is that? Let me look it up because it's on Audible. Um, <laughs> you know what? My phone is dead right now. so maybe we It's okay. <laughs> we, but we, you can text us later on and then we can put on our show notes. Okay, great. Awesome. The second question is, what's the most powerful routine you do to create a financially free and balanced life? I am very, very OCD about task management. So I feel like um, every Monday and every beginning of the month, I have an entire template of things that I go through. And I found that has helped our businesses a lot as far as just every Monday checking my finances, every Monday recording all of my drives for the week, every Monday checking in with clients and doing similar things for the beginning of the month. So doing all my invoicing at the beginning of the month, setting up all of our classes, checking in on what's happening with different deals. And I think for myself, that's been very beneficial. I find that people struggle sometimes when they get behind and then it feels overwhelming. I prevent that by doing monthly and weekly check-ins. 
Awesome. The last question is, which woman, famous or not, has inspired you the most? Probably Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, I'm a big politics buff, and I just really like that Eleanor Roosevelt, um, you know, didn't let things get her down and also just was so articulate about communicating to others and fighting for people that couldn't fight for themselves and considered that to be an extremely important thing. And then also I feel like was very much an equal to her husband, whether she got credit for that or not. Um, but uh, I love Eleanor Roosevelt. So I think sometimes if I'm struggling, I like, I just think about her as a leader and what she's given back to the community around her. Right. It's awesome. Well, Aaron, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time and great insight and, and advice and all the great nuggets you share with the ladies. So thank you so much for being on our show. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, thank it you was so really much. Great. I really enjoyed this conversation. So Awesome. Thank you so much, Erin. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to receive updates on our next interviews, go to our website, therealestateinvestor.com. There, you can subscribe to our show, become part of our investor community, and get updates on upcoming episodes. If you like our show, please share it with other women who would benefit. And don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. And as always, we encourage you to take one action as a result of today's show and put it into motion so you can live both a financially free and balanced life. Thanks for spending time with us. Ciao.